Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. In this podcast, award-winning writer Carmel Winters talks about her latest play, The Remains of Maisie Duggan, currently reposing on the Peacock stage, a play that challenges the notion of love and injury and other catastrophes. From there, we talk about violence rooted in comedy, about violence rooted in relationships and the diabolical history of homophobia. The bookmaker's daughter talks about the odds of being one of 12, the free fall of large families and the time-lapse luxury of writing. Enjoy this podcast. Um, I was sitting in one of the previews there with you the other night uh, for your play, The Remains of Maisie Duggan, and a fair few writers I know wouldn't be comfortable sitting in an auditorium with an audience during the preview. How is it for you watching an audience, watching your work? There are always underlying tensions that you're managing through that period of really releasing the play into the world. Um, But for me, the stage when the audience comes in is probably one of the most happy stages. There's a great relief in it. At that point, the tensions are accumulating for everyone involved. Um, Because this thing in your imagination, in all of our imagination by then, um, needs to meet an audience to see itself and begin to recognise itself. And it really helps with the final stages of um, recognising what it is and crafting crafting the communication of it. So by the time the audience came in for the first preview, I was just delighted to see them. Then I'm sitting, when I'm actually sitting in the audience, I'm acutely aware of moment to moment hearing what's, how things are landing and what's happening, how the play is actually functioning, what it's doing to the audience from moment to moment. Um, and I'm watching out for how we, as a me, as part of a team at that point now, how we're managing that. And can you always predict what, how an audience is going to react? Is there something, when you're in the auditorium, is there something that you don't hear when when you've written it, that you just? No, I I, I would know while I'm writing it, um, the kind of range of responses it's likely to provoke. I would know what the play is doing in each moment and then I'd be watching how it's managing the progression from moment to moment how the play is managing that progression with the audience Uh, basically I remember when I was making Snap the film Snap there was a dog in it and uh, the line producer said to me you know are you confident the dog will perform on the day (laughs) and I said I'm really confident that the dog will behave like a dog. So I have the same confidence about an audience. I'm really confident that the audience will behave like an audience. And that's all that's required. And by audience, I mean they'll, set, they'll behave like a group of human beings gathered within that particular contract. So that's good enough for me. But then it's down to how I, as a writer... Like, I typically write really peculiar tonal shifts in in my work. You'll go from very high comedy to kind of gut-wrenching moments very quick. And they're tricky to manage. They're not unintentional, but they need careful management. And uh, it's kind of acknowledged within the writing that audiences won't be unified through, through those moments. Some people will be laughing while others are absolutely not. You know, so I'm, 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 I'm. Playing would be the wrong word because it would imply a kind of entertainment at the audience's expense, which I would never 
indulging. But to me, that's very close to real life. Real life, there, there's a kind of a roller coaster of energy running through situations. And we touch or brush off or kind of release unusual energies from moment to moment. You know, this kind of tonal congruity to uh, say, okay, something is a... There's no, there's, I don't think there's any hour and a half in life where there aren't a variety of tonal shifts. So I would be trying to kind of bring that turbulent but true sense of how energy moves and progresses inside a play. Um, I've heard you talk about the role of the outsider in your writing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. where the interest in the outsider comes from? Mm -hmm. um, I've great... Um, I, I suppose I've, I'm truly interested in the person who finds themselves outside of norms. Now, I think every single human being at some stage in their life will go through an experience that will put them on the outside for a while, whether that might be losing a job, a relationship breakup, um, maybe mental health uh, problems, distress, whatever it is. Or and the obvious ones then are like something like um, being a traveller, being gay. I think there are um, unique perspectives available to an outsider. When you step outside, you begin to see things in a new way. And as a dramatist, I'm acutely involved always with trying to provide an audience with new ways of seeing things, particularly the familiar. Um, to me, the artist's job is to make invisible things visible. Every artist is involved in that um, quest to make intangible felt things visible for us to see together and I'm in, in that condition of togetherness so married to my intrinsic compassion for the outsider um, in their aloneness which I think deserves to be alleviated is a sense that there's an incredible dramatic opportunity as well for creating new ways regenerating our capacity to see and energising it and uh, I suppose I I I didn't um, I wasn't identified as a lesbian in my childhood, so I didn't experience my own. I didn't gain an outsider perspective from that per se. On uh, but I kind of intrinsically would lean into the experience of. The one who's outside looking in. But certainly then, um, being lesbian would be a great benefit um, because it allows you to step outside even particular heterosexual norms which kind of define an awful lot of our thinking about relationships. And you have an opportunity in a same-sex relationship I've been in heterosexual and same-sex relationships and I've seen the common ground that seems to have to do with gender, but really doesn't. So there's a great capacity to, um, you know, share a sense of maybe 
um, opportunities to do things differently or at least see them differently and then the opportunity to do things differently might arise if we see them differently do you feel a responsibility to write for gay characters about gay characters I, I, this is really interesting because I would have um, you always want to write beyond your own biography because the writing is like a you know a long haul flight it's like going somewhere from reality so I get to be on holiday somewhere else for a certain portion of every day when I'm writing and I really value that I get to walk in shoes other than my own and I love that that's the joy of the creative enterprise you know but I will never I will always catch myself on if I am affirming a mainstream limited restricted way of seeing things if I'm naturalizing a white male heterosexual middle class way of seeing the world I go look there's enough people doing that there's enough people doing that so I'll try not to do that but I don't feel obliged to write lesbian characters Um, I feel probably um, there are because and that probably comes from I spent many years making lesbian queer drama and I, I, I um, devised lots and lots of stories then. So I did do a lot of that. And those stories needed to be told. There was an incredible appetite um, among lesbians at the time who hadn't been seeing themselves on stage or screen at all. And it was a need. It was a, an absolute need I was kind of addressing and meeting, meeting in the work. Now I feel less, less. I feel there, was more, there are more people writing. There are more people reflecting that experience. But in this play, I, um, I, I went back to, there is a character uh, bringing back home to the nuclear family that she ran out of 20 years before, bringing back an experience as filtered through being in a same-sex relationship. And I thought there was something that needed to be said in a much more public arena than what I had been saying years ago um, when I was making drama for lesbians. For lesbians, by lesbians, with lesbians. This was like, now we're ready for a much more public conversation. Now we're ready for a conversation in which heterosexuals can maybe learn something from the experience of uh, lesbians and vice versa we can start to share ground and start to have a kind of honest, honest conversation it might not have been politically possible it was certainly creatively possible because I'd written the play prior to the uh, equality the marriage referendum um, I'd written it prior to that but I think it's not surprising that it wasn't produced until after that because we're into kind of we're kind of into the area of um, injury in relationships and that the kind of injury that lesbians don't escape any more than heterosexuals. Talk to me about the violence in the play and how it's coated with comedy and where the place of comedy. Yeah. Well, there are all kinds of violence. They're particularly creative, this family, in how they perpetrate violence. 
so it's not so much that it's quoted in comedy it's intrinsically rooted in comedy because it's as if this this charge this turbo charge this life force that's insisting on moving through them is thwarted in so many directions that violence oddly is its only um outlet it's the only channel through which i'd i would say love in this family love is exchanged through violence that that's that's a challenging notion but that's the truth inside that family the more you get to know the moments when they um erupt it's because they're they've associated softness or gentleness kindness with weakness and that you know they wouldn't survive it somehow there's a kind of inheritance of love as something that um, is dangerous really dangerous you know the being vulnerable is really not on it has no place in this in this world so instead the, there's a kind of perversion of love which erupts in violence but it is love and the humour then um, the humour sort of they're funny they're really really funny <laughs> I mean that's what the tricky thing in the rehearsal room is and it's the tricky thing for the audiences I mean you'll have seen in the preview there's a lot of laughter I mean they're inventive and they're they're inventive about their attacks on each other and there's a kind of space in which we can appreciate um this odd juxtaposition of love and injury when you, you talked earlier about the timing i suppose of this play being produced post marriage equality and mm-hmm. post referendum we don't often see uh, we don't often see violence uh, within same-sex relationships on stage. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I mean, it's taboo, really. It's taboo, even. I would say. Um, really, was very, very dangerous not so long ago to merely be homosexual. So, um, I mean, we're really so recent. I mean, when I read about, you know, um, women being in romantic relationships with each other in New York in the 1950s and being beaten up by the police, um, being raped as a corrective experience, you know, to cure their lesbianism. I mean, that's very recent diabolical history there is an awful lot of injury um i i'm i'm part of the generation that didn't have it as tough as the previous as the generation before me but neither have um my my generation hasn't had it as relatively easy and i don't think it's easy but as relatively easy as the younger generation so I feel I'm part of the generation that has access 
to the injury of homophobia and heterosexism, but also kind of enough freedom to speak um, and to speak about this and speak through it and for it. And uh, I think there's genuine healing available for us when we start, for all of us, when we start to uh, speak truth. I really believe in, I believe in how healing it is to tell the story. I think in a in a lot of same-sex relationships, people have had to fight so hard to have that relationship respected and honoured that then they might be boxed in and unable to speak about the difficulties. It might be as extreme as violence, but the kind of tensions and resentments and betrayals or hurts, disappointments, they don't have, they mightn't have as much space to be aired. So with the likes of the equality referendum, I mean the marriage referendum, sorry, the impulse was to normalise mainstream um, same-sex relationships. But I don't believe in the normalisation project for any kind of relationship because the minute you set up norms, you create the conditions for people to be alienated. Because very few norms are set up as an outside-in thing, not a, you know, inside in all of our relationships, we fall short of what we consider to be external norms because the norm has no real value or meaning or life in relation to the nuts and bolts and lived details of how we manage to live together. Now that it has become culturally there is more respect for same-sex relationships, more more understanding, um, more respect mainly. I think there's an opportunity for us to share, share more deeply about the reality. Not just celebrate, but also investigate and reveal perhaps that it isn't all a bed of roses, or isn't always. Leaving Maisie behind for a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about your background. What kind of household mm-hmm. was it that you grew up in? A par- a well, a perfect household for uh, <laughs> a dramatist in the making, in that I was born into a house where there were already 10 kids. Um, so a really busy village. You know, it was larger than what most people's experience of a family would be. Noisier, women, like lots of competing voices, competing narratives. Uh, we, big personalities. Uh, like usually you'd expect within a large group of people they're kind of very particular defined roles and I'd say everyone it was fairly free for all it was we were we were there was never ever a quiet moment I was never alone I remember one time my mother was on holidays and for some reason which I cannot figure out my father had me out of school for a couple of days and um I was on my own for the school day until he came home from the betting office at lunchtime. And I will never forget how time altered. Before that time was always, time just flew by, so I never experienced the passage of time. 
because it was always I was just you know I was literally hopping out of bed to eat up the day there was always an event like it was a constant thrilling drama that to watch or else participate in there was never a dull moment I never ever had experienced boredom and next thing I'll never forget how I'm on my own with absolutely nothing to do no television no radio nothing and I experienced a condition of time for the first time like time stretched out like a a kind of an infinity of space that I had to fill and I remember playing tricks you know I would know he was going to be home at half twelve and I was like how to fill the time before half twelve and say it was ten o'clock I'd say I'll pretend it's nine o'clock and I'll go out and pick fox's gloves and then when I come in from picking fox's gloves not only will the time that I have filled past but I'll, I'll be surprised because I'll pretend it was nine when I'm out and even more time will have passed. So I went off out picking fox gloves and I strung it out as long as I possibly could before I came in to check the time. <laughs> so look at the clock and I'll never forget it. It wasn't even five past ten. So I was just, it was seriously mind-altering. It's probably like how people who take substances experience a shift in reality. That was my first experience of reality really shifting according to your experience becoming really strange and unusual and unfamiliar. I was like, wow. It was like, I might as well have been taken from planet Earth and landed on on the moon. You know, so, um, but that kind of stood to me as an incredible counterpoint to my, my, um, my, my familiars, my familiars, it was just full busy. So in a way, the writing, writing is like another, another, a creation of another time and space other than the busy shared social one. You know, where I fill the time and the space with something I've made up. But um Do you remember when you first started writing and do you know what you wrote about? Um hmm, I used to do recitations um where I would perform these long narrat um kind of verse narratives and I remember writing one myself. And I wrote it specifically because I knew the kind of stuff that had great power in performance from doing them. And I said, oh, I can make up one now where I can really... Um, and it is, even back then, I knew I was kind of going for the solar plexus in the audience. And <laughs> I remember making up a really melodramatic story that had great highs and lows and it, you know, enjoying delivering it immensely. Um, so I was writing for performance. That was the first thing I wrote. And it was specifically knowing what you could do through performance and then going, mm, if I write it myself, I can really load it, you know. Load the, well, you know, put put the right arrows in the bow ready to release. So that was, I enjoyed that. Um, 
and then but I was quite naive about it I mean I wrote an old man for myself to play as an 11 year old girl it would have been smarter to not write you know and I was out with the copying and the big jacket and, but um, that was the first experience so immediately it was in front of an audience so there you go I mean my instinct was for theatre even though I saw very little of it I wasn't around anyone who made theatre well my I had a neighbour down the road alright who directed theatre and on some deep level I knew he was a kindred spirit I rarely saw him but it was like he was one of my people you know <laughs> you know I um, and everybody I continually was told I should be on the stage as a kid that was always a kind of a comment was that encouraged by your family or teachers or not family and not particularly teachers because my method of being performative was a little bit rebellious in school I mean I was I would have been a I'd have been a kind of a torture to some teachers I imagine in that like my instinct was always to champion the underdog so the underdog would have been my fellow students not the teachers until I gained a little bit of maturity to you know in one instance realize oh the real underdog here is the teacher I better back her up a bit so the instinct was to use kind of maybe to to it was a performative instinct for sure, but it was certainly uh, dedicated to the kind of cause of justice as I understood it or as I perceived it, you know. So I thought I might do law. I thought, you know, I had the. I thought I might be a barrister. That was a very. I mean, I could have been. I can see a parallel life in which I'd be very happy to do that, but um, then. I think I just randomly heard that there was such a thing called a course in drama. It had only just started up in Trinity and I I nosed my way towards it. And you said you hadn't seen or been around theatre. Mm-hmm. When you went for this course, uh, you obviously had to prime yourself. Yeah, I went and I saw a professional show in the Cork Opera House for the first time. Um, I had to kind of organise a bus to Cork and I got to the theatre and it was nearly empty and it was um, there were two lovely big armchairs that had been set out maybe for um, wheel, uh, I don't know what they were for actually because they were so incongruous they were not in with the other seats but I got to sit into one of them and get what felt like a performance entirely for me from the actors on stage and it was just wonderful I loved it. I was delighted with myself. It felt so incredibly privileged to be inside this creation and to be so close to the actors on stage, you know, like this, like a bubble. Like at the, at, there was this really thin membrane between me and them uh, and in this, this extraordinary intimacy. So it was, it was lovely, I remember really. I, I was very keen to get making theatre, to be inside the experience of making theatre. And the first play I ever wrote then would have been um, inspired by the Kerry Babies. I wanted to write the story that I felt hadn't been told, couldn't be told, and was the true story. So there was great naivety in me, in a way, in tackling something like that, where there are real people's experience involved. But that's always my instinct. It's always to, it's, it's to create a conduit, a fictional passageway through which 
the truth can travel. Because um, I think that's that's the point of fiction is that it can create safe conditions for the truth. Because um, in a documentary sense, there are more threats to the truth and people have to carry the consequences of being the messengers, you know, um, whereas when you can work, I think there are incredible opportunities available to us in fiction, but also incredible responsibilities. When did you start making that theatre and then were there repercussions to that play? Yeah, I um, it was put on in San Francisco by a producing company, a large company called Brava. And what, what was put on was a one-act version of the full-length play that I had yet to write because it was a, essentially a festival for one-act plays. So I had a version that kind of strained inside this smaller room and there were no consequences because it was over in San Francisco and it escaped the attention of anyone over here and I'd say there would have been consequences if it had if it hadn't escaped the attention the danger is I mean one of the first plays I ever wrote and I think it might have been before that was a play in which I unwittingly wrote the truth of someone's experience I unwittingly wrote that without knowing I was writing it and it, so as someone I knew I, I, I put I imagined what I thought was a fiction and in fact what I imagined was what I hadn't been told because I think people I mean conditions create narratives so if you pay close attention to conditions you'll have a fair idea what will happen to the people inside those conditions this is why I think people are far less culpable than, you know, even people who do fairly dreadful things. Very often the conditions in which they were born or the conditions they were maybe ambushed by as they went through life, to a very large extent, made them who they are or swayed their hand in the way it did. So, yeah, that played in when I wrote the full-length version. The audience were quite enthralled by the one-act version. But I remember my cousin was over there and she said to me, Oh, you know, it's not... Now, they were more enthralled by the storytelling. There was great drama and very potent characters on stage. But I suppose it was, was, um, style-wise, it was natural realism. And she said to me, my cousin said, Oh, she said... if." Theatre, you'd expect, like, um, angels flying around. Now, I kind of, that really, I listened closely to that, and I was going, oh, so what she's getting at is theatre likes to deal in something other than a fairly straightforward representation of reality. And it became quite kind of, and at the time as well, what I noticed was inside, when I was writing this play, it was, I was really needing access to more characters than what the theatrical condition would really uh, approve, we'll say. And that's when I accidentally stumbled into film. And then once I stumbled into film with essentially that first full-length play, I, I, it became my absolute 
not quite obsession but certainly I was wholly immersed in working out how to craft a film story for a long period of time after that where I didn't even look back to theatre. So does, does film allow you to tell your stories more freely? No, no. I realise each of them now, each, each film and theatre have provided me with wholly unique opportunities and wholly distinct restrictions. Each is as restricted as the other, but the restrictions are different. So you gain a kind of freedom by going from one to the other. But, oh yeah. Does while that inform the other though? Because if you're swaying from one to the other, does it, does it benefit the other? Yeah. I think so. It energizes my appreciation of the form immensely. Like while I'm making theatre, I love it. And I don't even think film. And while I'm making film, I love it so much I don't even think. I'm obviously some sort of serial monogamist. <laughs> compartmentalist, anyway. Well, not so much. It's just the level of immersion the boat require. They're incredibly intense art forms. Drama is so perilous. Film and theatre are so perilous. You're not making them right. The period of time where you craft a script is the only time in which you have... A, a fairly large degree of control as soon as that moves into the realm of the team really it is incredibly unpredictable perilous risky dangerous thrilling communal um, the rewards are immensely um, rich in direct proportion to the risks because you know we're all we multiply all of our so so as a writer I'll always be managing what I can do in relation to what I haven't been able to do and then that multiplies through all of us every single one of us in our individual art forms coming together to make something um, we are all all aiming to really get there but we'll all be incredibly sensitive to the things we're not achieving so we have to be very forgiving of each other and able to support each other because the art form we're involved in is one where and I think that's true of all art art is exactly like life perfection is not possible it really isn't you know um we will say, oh, that was perfect. We might say that, but in truth, the practitioners involved will always, there's an, there's always that extra we're after, you know. So the lovely thing is being able, is that sometimes we all together make something bigger and better and bolder than any of us as individuals were capable of. In other times, it's less than that, you know, and that's just how it is. Um, and that's where I think um, I'm the daughter of a bookie. My father uh, was a bookie. And there, uh, quite a few of my brothers would have the kind of gambling gene. Like we, the gambling thing is a big thing in our house. And I would have thought, I remember saying to my sisters one time, it's amazing that it kind of passed the girls, the six girls and six boys and the, the siblings. And I think, you know, none of the girls became gamblers at all. And then I went, whoa, I did. What I do is 
gambling. It's intrinsically a gambler's enterprise. Does the risk always pay off and what do you do when it doesn't? Well, well, it doesn't always pay off is the honest answer, right? There are there are there are things that don't work out. There are scripts that I'll break my heart over and then like there was one in particular that I probably spent two years researching. I over researched actually, but it wa- that in itself wasn't the kind of fatal problem with that project. There was a script that I really wanted to write that I wasn't capable of writing. I knew someone should write it. And I said, oh, I'll give it a lash. I really wanted this play to exist, but I don't think I had the skill set to do it. Um, it. It was gutting, but when I finally let it go, there was a great relief in moving on to what I could do rather than battering my head against you know a brick wall of what I quite I wasn't quite able to do and then sometimes together when you you know in a team you know um with the best will in the world there's something needed that we don't have access to and there's a huge grief in it I think when something doesn't work out you know it there is a kind of bereavement um a friend of mine sent me a she had read a, something by the novelist Anne Patchett saying that uh, when she writes a novel, I'm paraphrasing her now, but when she writes a novel, she always has the feeling that in the journey from the imagination to the page, she's killing something as much as giving it life. She's killing something. And that that feeling has never gone away, but that she's learned to forgive herself to weather the death and to forgive herself. Now that really spoke to me. Because with every, well not every, but most things. The odd time I remember, I mean, it is rare that it entirely comes off. I think that is, um, but there are kind of gifts along the way. And I really try and appreciate the gifts. And I really try and appreciate other people's goodwill and the kind of lovely moments of the flowering of their creativity inside and whatever we're doing together. Um, And I'd say the job in which I find it easiest to be gracious and appreciative and quite humble about it is directing. Directing is the one where it brings out my best qualities and my more generous spirit. You know what I mean? I'm able to sustain the knocks when I'm directing because I'm very, very, very... um, focused on on facilitate creating the conditions for everyone to flourish in so i have kind of i i suppose i'm i become larger than my my writer self um my writer self is they're both me they're both you know but my writer self takes the knocks harder because um because when I'm directing, I feel responsible to far more people. And that makes me a bit bigger. I guess it's a bit like, you know, when, when women become mothers, a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women become bigger when they become mothers. I suppose I may, I'm just guessing that that's something similar when I'm directing. I just really enjoy 
enjoy the conducting you know that that you know the music all the instrumentation that becomes available there's supposed the pleasures are are pretty great to kind of balance this the balance the inevitable kind of little deaths along the way is that like is that something to do with control though as well that you control more as a director or am i wrong um it's more it i don't see i don't experience there is more control yeah there is more control but i don't experience it as control i experience it as um being in the heart of the thing and that's a very happy place to be at the heart of it i always i mean i always have a i have to manage not directing my own work um, and that's honest. Like I, I have to plan for how I will not, um, not get in the director's way. How I can best be the writer alongside a director. I have to work that out because my natural impulse, uh, my natural, I, I've already thought a lot without even while I'm writing. I have thought how to do it. I've I've very strong ideas how to do it, how to achieve it. They're not separate for me, the writing and the making. I've sort of kind of hardwired the making in the writing. So uh, I have to take responsibility for making sure that that capacity does not in any way, I mean, a director is so entitled to the space in which they can create as autonomous artists in themselves. So I have to manage how I can be a really positive linchpin in the team. To wrap up, mm. uh, can I ask you why you write and what you get out of it? Mm. Before, like the build up to writing is all uncomfortable. There's resistance, resistance, re- resistance. So that's the unpleasant bit. That's the guilty for not writing. I should be writing all those tensions that I think nearly every writer I know experiences. But once I'm actually writing and I've kind of broken into, it's like getting into that space like a locked house. And how to get in to the house is always hard. It's really strenuous. And that's the least rewarding bit of it. It's full of frustration. But once I'm in there, once I get in, it's wonderful. It's actually fantastic. Even if the material is really dark, there are incredible pleasures associated with creating so um it is like i become something other than just myself i've access to knowledge that's greater than my everyday knowledge when it's going well i'm in a dance and i'm i am not alone in the dance i am in great company i am i'm actually tuning into entities and energies that i'm playing with properly you know dancing with and it's 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 actually wonderful when i come back to reality when i come back out of that house i love coming back to reality it's like coming back home after a holiday and going my love my lovely kitchen table my garden oh look look at the new plants like everything when i come back to my everyday life after the few hours writing whatever it is everything's better and I'm way more relaxed in myself 
and appreciative and grounded and you know just delighted really so it's a it's a it's if I delay writing and if things if more and more things get in the way of writing that just prolongs this phase of struggle where there are almost no rewards um, and the trick is to spend as much time in that house rather than trying to get into that house Thank you.